minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are breakthrough. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. What's up, biohackers? I hope you guys are doing amazing, having a beautiful start to 2021. It is New Year's Eve, and I just experimented with my first episode, we're calling it Story Time, where I read with a little bit of commentary an excerpt from a book, a paper, resource, something that's had a profound impact on my philosophies, the the way that I live my life, the things that we share with clients and teach at our events. And uh, and then at the end, you know, we kind of keep it a mystery what it is. And then at the end, if you guys stick around and enjoy it, you know, I share what that book or resource is so that you could pick it up and dive deeper if you'd like. And if you guys enjoy these episodes, um, share the Biohacking Secrets show with uh, your friends, your family, coworkers, tell them to check it out. Give it 15 minutes and uh, subscribe themselves if they dig it. You know, we've been, we've been shadow banned on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I'm sure our website has, but not really even too hung up on it anymore. Basically, the way for us to continue growing and the way that we are still growing is through you guys, through word of mouth and through uh, people like you appreciating our voice, seeing what we believe to be true, um, where a lot of other resources, the mainstream media, many um, many blogs and mainstream information sites are sharing, you know, blatant, blatant lies. And most of you guys are, all of you guys, you're, I know you're smarter than that and I know you see through it. And, and I believe that the future is for those of us who are courageous enough to speak truth, or at least what we believe to be true. You know, I'll say it, um, I'll say it again. I may not always be right, but I'm not lying. You know, anything that I'm sharing with you guys, you know, I believe that to be the truth at the time that it is being shared, right? And like anything, I always encourage you to do your own research, your own critical thinking, and to come to your own conclusions. But if I can share some information and insights that allow you more love, joy, peace, gratitude, and beauty in your life, deeper connections with the people you care about, that's what I'm here to do. Um, And... You know, there's been a, a big awakening in 2020, but part of that awakening has been a lot of people trying to wake other people up. And if that's been you, or if um, if you've if, if you've been on either end of that, you've probably seen that trying to share a reality with someone that is worse than the reality that they currently believe to be uh, reflective of truth, it's it's a hard sell. You know, so basically pointing to all the horror in the world is not an effective way to wake people up. Uh, Living an awesome life, focusing on the good, the true, and the beautiful, and being the embodiment of those things that you value. You know, for me, that's, that's love, that's health, that's 
joy, that's peace, that's connection, community, family, you know, um, being the embodiment of those things is what attracts people to um, the methodologies, philosophies, and uh, implements that you have used in order to uh, create that reality in your own life you know, in order to manifest those things for yourself. That's, that's what people respond to, you know, and the frequency of, um, of, of that comes from focusing on the good, the true and the beautiful is so much more powerful than the, the, the frequency of horror and, uh, lies and, um, you know, some of the things that are going on, but, you know, life's hard enough. We don't need people constantly showing us, ah, oh, look at this, you know, and, and I've, I've been guilty of that too. So what's the way out? You know, um, I believe the way out is non-dependence. Um, it's not being self-sufficient where you're like living by yourself in the middle of nowhere. It's being community sufficient by, uh, living in a place that is, you know, where there's lots of life density around you, lots of plants and animals and, and fresh air and clean water and uh, land that is, is able to um, grow an abundance of, of food and, and um, you know, produce, produce resources that give us an incredible quality of life. And one of the things that we're doing this year is we're building that community. And if you want to be one of the founding members of that, if you're looking to be a part of something that that is building um, and a part of the solution where we are going to be producing our own power, our own food, organic food, where we are able to step outside of a system where your food only comes from grocery stores, your power only comes from the electric companies, your water only comes from the city municipalities where they're essentially recycling toilet water and, you know, can't even take out a lot of the prescription drugs and metals and junk that's in there. You know, if you want to be drinking fresh spring water and eating organic food that's grown locally, that you're a part of that process. Um, and, you know, really part of a conscious community that's living in harmony with nature. Um, we are, um, yeah, we're, we're taking applications for our founding members. It's going to be a small group of people. Um, and like I said, you know, you can think of it as a conscious community of like-minded people that are living in harmony with nature. And it doesn't mean this needs to be your main home. A lot of people are probably going to have it just as a vacation spot or a place that they can come visit when they need to uh, recharge. But um, this is a place where we can have one another's backs. You know, you, you, you will be surrounded by other people who get it and um, focusing on growth and building rather than just, um, you know, pointing to all of the things that are wrong in the world, right? This is how we truly can be a part of the solution, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And um, we haven't worked out all the exact details, but it's basically going to be, um, I will go out and find us the perfect piece of land. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the donations that you make, um, will determine how much land you get. So, uh, on the high end, you know, um, 
roughly $100,000 will get you an acre in this community and you can grow enough food for an entire family of four on um, even just half an acre of property. But um, we'll have community gardens. Like I said, we, we will be, um, there will be health facilities. There will be uh, a, a lot of exciting nature activities, um, campfires, cool events, camping, and um, we will be community sufficient, right? We may still be on the power grid and all of that. We're not trying to compete with Babylon here. We're, we're creating an alternative where we still have our freedoms and we are not reliant or dependent upon them. So as I mentioned, food, water, power, um, all of those things we are producing from within our community and we, um, have each other's backs and it's a community of high morality people, uh, people that live by a code, uh, under God's law, under the, the, under natural law. And, uh, yeah, we look out for one another, right? So that's what I believe is the way out. And that's what we are building. So if you want to be a part of that, again, it starts at about a hundred thousand dollars for an acre. You can get land cheaper than that. Um, the value here is in your tribe and, um, and it's going to be the best spot, I believe in the world for this. Um, we've got a couple of areas that we're looking in, um, probably the, the, the first will be in the North Carolina ish area, North Carolina, Tennessee, et cetera. Um, and there will be more details if it's a fit, but then we are going all the way down to quarter acre plots. So quarter acre would be, um, 25 K and if accepted and if it's a fit and this could just be your, you know, backup, your bug out spot, your vacation home and, um, you know, some land that you could build on and, you know, it will, we'll have it where people could throw up a canvas wall tent on there if they want an RV or if they want to get started and build, you know, a cabin or a home, that's cool too. Um, so if you want to learn more about that and be a part of this project and see if it's a fit, you can go to biohackercoaching.com, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-E-R coaching, C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com. Fill out the short application form. Uh, let us know it's about, um, just put, you know, tribe, um, somewhere in the notes. And, uh, if I'm expecting, there's going to be a good amount of, of applications. Cause just guys that have been to our event and in our programs have already, um, expressed interest in this. So, uh, if you want to jump to the front of the line, you can also send a text message to, um, 847-989-3743. And I don't know, just put whatever VIP or tribe up, you know, let me know that you're interested in the community project and, uh, we'll find a time to talk, see if it's a fit. And yeah, just make sure that you're in a position, like there's not payment plans or anything like that. Um, the money will be used to secure the land. So, um, you know, you need to, uh, the, the minimum investment is 25 K and it goes up to hundred K and that's kind of just what it is. Um, but if it's a fit for you or someone you care about, you know, feel free to pass this along to them. People can pool money and work out deals, whatever you want to do with, with other folks in your, uh, family or network and we can go from there. So, Pretty excited about that. Again, that website's biohackercoaching.com, same place that you go if you want to apply for our coaching program. And uh, without further ado, 
we are going to dive into a book that I will reveal at the end. Um, it's story time. And if you guys like these, you know, let me know. Um, make sure you follow us on BitChute. And uh, I think it's under Anthony DiClemente or Biohacking Secrets. And then subscribe to our newsletter by going to biohackersguide.com slash energy crash. And that's the best way to stay up to date with our stuff right now. Uh, that's biohackersguide.com forward slash energy crash. And if you don't already have my book, pick that up, biohackersguide.com. All right, here we go. Since the dawn of the human race, medicine men and physicians have wondered about the cause of disease, especially what we call, quote, contagions. Numerous people become ill with similar symptoms all at the same time. Does humankind suffer these outbreaks at the hands of an angry god or evil spirit, a disturbance in the atmosphere, a miasma? Do we catch the illness from the others or from some outside influence? With the Invention of the microscope in 1670 and the discovery of bacteria, doctors had a new candidate to blame. Tiny, one-celled organisms that humans could pass from one to another through contact and exhalation. But the germ theory of disease did not take hold until 200 years later with celebrity scientist Louis Pasteur and soon became the explanation for most illnesses. Recognition of nutritional deficiencies as a cause of diseases like scurvy, pellagra, and beriberi, beriberi, I might be saying that wrong, took decades because the germ theory became the explanation for everything that ails the human being. As Robert R. Williams, one of the discoverers of thiamine, vitamin B1, lamented, quote, all young physicians were so imbued with the idea of infections as the cause of disease that it presently came to be accepted as almost anxiomatic that disease could have no other cause other than microbes. The preoccupation of physicians with infection as a cause of disease was doubtless responsible for many digressions from attention to food as the causal factor of beriberi or beriberi. I don't know what that word is. <laughs> During the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, the deadliest example of a contagion in recent history, doctors struggled to explain the worldwide reach of the illness. It sickened an estimated 500 million people, about one third of the planet's population, and killed between 20 to 50 million people. It seemed to appear spontaneously in different parts of the world, striking the young and healthy, including many American servicemen. Some communities shut down schools, businesses, and theaters. People were ordered to wear masks and refrain from shaking hands to stop the contagion. But was it contagious? Health officials in those days believed that the cause of the Spanish flu was a microorganism called Pfeiffer's bacillus. And they were interested in the question of how the organism could spread so quickly. To answer that question, doctors from the U.S. Public Health Service tried to infect 100 healthy volunteers between the ages of 18 and 25 by collecting mucus secretions from the noses, from the noses throats, and upper respiratory tracts of those who were sick. They transferred these secretions to the noses, mouths, and lungs of the volunteers, but not one of them succumbed. Blood of sick donors was injected into the blood of volunteers, but they remained stubbornly healthy. Finally, 
they instructed those afflicted to breathe and cough over the healthy volunteers. But the results were the same. The Spanish flu was not contagious, and physicians could attach no blame to the accused bacterium. Those of you guys who listen to a lot of the episodes of the podcast and you listened to the previous episode, you probably heard a similar story that was shared in The Invisible Rainbow. Um, just letting you know you're not listening to the same thing you already heard. This is a different <laughs> book. Um, and you'll see there's a, lot of, there's a lot of juicy stuff in here. What's up, guys? Anthony DiClemente here, and this message is brought to you by Buy Optimizers. So a few years ago, I was in a frustrating situation. After just about every meal, I would experience gas, bloating, stomach distension, constipation, even diarrhea. And this three-month gut reset protocol completely changed the game. I'd tried a ton of things. Nothing had really worked that well until I did this. So what I did was I combined masszymes, Bioptimizer's enzyme formulation that helps to break down protein and increase your own immune system's effectiveness with their probiotic at a specific dosage of 10 capsules of masszymes with five capsules of the P3OM probiotic taken in the morning on an empty stomach and then at night on an empty stomach. And right away, I started seeing some positive improvements. Then I added another six capsules of the masszymes and three capsules of the P3OM probiotic before each meal. And a few months of that, specifically three months, nine bottles worth, my gut was almost completely fixed. Throwing a little bit of gasoline on the fire, I made sure to fast for 14 to 16 hours between dinner and my first meal the next day to increase autophagy, upregulate the immune system, and help clear out some of the other viruses, bacteria, even parasites that can inhabit our, our gut. And that made a massive difference for me. And if you're experiencing any of these symptoms, it will probably make a massive difference for you. So if you guys wanna check out that gut reset protocol, it requires nine bottles of the masszymes, nine bottles of the P3OM, and you can get it at buyoptimizers.com forward slash biohacks. We've got all the discount codes already applied and put together a nice, a, a nice way for you guys to save on the package when you go there. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M, I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash biohacks, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S. And you'll see the three-month gut reset protocol that includes nine bottles of masszymes and nine bottles of P3OM. Take it as recommended and you will see a huge improvement in your gut health. Check it out. Pasteur, the founder of germ theory, believed that the healthy human body was sterile and became sick only when invaded by bacteria, a view that dominated the practice of medicine for over a century. In recent years, we have witnessed a complete reversal of the reigning medical paradigm, that bacteria attack us and make us sick. We have learned that the digestive tract of a healthy person contains up to six pounds of bacteria, which play many beneficial roles. They protect us against toxins, support the immune system, help digest our food, create vitamins, and even produce feel-good chemicals. Bacteria that coat the skin and line the vaginal tract play equally protective roles. These discoveries call into question many current medical practices, from antibiotics to hand-washing. Indeed, researchers have become increasingly frustrated in their attempts to prove that bacteria make us sick, except as co-actors in extremely unnatural conditions. Enter viruses. Louis Pasteur did not find a bacteria that could cause rabies and speculated 
about a pathogen too small for detection by microscopes. The first images of these tiny particles, about one thousandth the size of a cell, were obtained upon the invention of the electron microscope in 1931. These viruses, from the Latin virus for toxin, were immediately assumed to be dangerous infectious agents. A virus is not a living organism that can reproduce on its own, but a collection of proteins and snippets of DNA and RNA enclosed in a membrane. Since they are seen in and around living cells, researchers assumed that viruses replicate only inside the living cells of an organism. The belief is that those ubiquitous viruses, quote, can infect all types of life forms, from animals and plants to microorganisms, including bacteria and archaea, end quote. Difficult to separate and purify, viruses are a convenient scapegoat for diseases that don't fit the bacterial model. Colds, flu, and pneumonia, once considered exclusively bacterial diseases, are now often blamed on a virus. Is it possible that scientists will one day discover that these particles, like the once maligned bacteria, play a beneficial role? Indeed, scientists have already done just that. But old ideas, especially ideas that promise profits from drugs and vaccines, the, quote, one bug, one drug, end quote, mentality, die hard. Today, the premise that coronavirus is contagious and can cause disease has provided the justification for putting entire nations on lockdown, destroying the global economy and throwing hundreds of thousands out of work. But is it contagious? Can one person give coronavirus to others and make them sick? Or is something else, some outside influence, causing illness in the vulnerable? These questions are bound to make public health officials uncomfortable, even angry, because the whole thrust of modern medicine derives from the premise that microorganisms, transmittable microorganisms, cause disease. From antibiotics to vaccines, from face masks to social distancing, most people submit willingly to such measures in order to protect themselves and others. To question the underlying principle of contagion, is to question the foundation of medical care. And we should be. <laughs> if you guys are enjoying this episode, share it. That's the way that we grow. And encourage your friends and family members to subscribe. Uh, I very much appreciate it, and I appreciate you listening. Let's continue. I'm delighted to join my colleague, Tom Cowan, in creating this expose of the modern medical myth that microorganisms cause disease, and that these diseases can be spread from one person to another through coughs, sneezes, kisses, and hugs. Like Tom, I am no stranger to controversial views. In my book, Nourishing Traditions, first, first published in 1996, I propose the heretical idea that cholesterol and saturated animal fats are not villains, but essential components of the diet, necessary for normal growth mental and physical well-being, and the prevention of disease. In Nourishing Traditions and in other writings, I presented the radical notion that pasteurization, collateral damage of the germ theory, destroys the goodness in milk and that raw whole milk is both safe and therapeutic, especially important for growing children. 
It is the most obvious substitute for breast milk where mothers are having trouble when mothers are having trouble nursing their babies, a proposition that makes health officials squirm. In subsequent publications, I've argued the dissenting view that it is a nutrient-dense diet and not the administration of vaccines that best protects our children from illness. Over the years, these views have found increasing support with both laypeople and health professionals. Error has consequences. The result of the notion that our diets should be devoid of animal fats, that children should grow up on processed skim milk, and that it's fine to vaccinate them dozens of times before the age of five has resulted in immense suffering in our children, an epidemic of chronic illness in adults, and a serious decline in the quality of our food supply. There are economic consequences as well including the devastation of rural life as small farms, especially dairy farms prohibited from selling their milk directly to customers, give in against the price pressures of big agriculture, and parents of children with chronic illness, estimated to be as high as one in six, who struggle with the costs of caring for them. What are the possible consequences of the premise that microorganisms, especially viruses, cause disease? The quote-unquote coronavirus pandemic gives us many clues. Forced vaccinations, microchipping, prescribed social distancing, lockdown, mandatory masks, and negation of our right to assemble and practice our religion whenever an illness appears that can be media-hyped into a public health emergency. Until we base our public policies on the truth, the situation will only get worse. The truth is that contagion is a myth. We need to look elsewhere for the causes of disease. Only when we do so will we create a world of freedom, prosperity, and good health. That was written by Sally Fallon Morell in July 2020. There's a little bit more, and if you guys are digging this at the end, I will share with you what it's from so you can pick it up and support the authors if you would like. This is written by, this next part's written by um, the author. I am no stranger to controversial views, particularly controversial positions in the field of medicine. In my latest series of three books, I have denounced several sacred icons that form the basis of our attitudes towards disease and its treatment. In Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, I clearly demonstrate that the heart is not a pump and that blocked arteries are not the predominant cause of heart attacks. Then, in Vaccines, autoimmunity, and the changing nature of childhood illness, I propose the theory that acute illness is not caused by an infection that attacks us from the outside, but rather represents a cleansing of our watery cellular gels. A corollary to this position is that any intervention that interferes with this cleansing response, in particular vaccines, is bound to create untold harm that manifests in skyrocketing rates of chronic disease. In what I thought would be my third and final book, Cancer and the New Biology of Water, I show why the quote-unquote war on cancer, end quote, is an utter failure. I argue that modern chemo, that the modern chemotherapeutic approach to cancer is useless and that an entirely new way of looking at this problem must emerge. 
I postulated that this new way of looking at medicine and biology must put the question of what actually causes disease squarely in the forefront of our thinking. I thought I was done writing controversial books, at least about medicine, and then I could turn my attention to finishing up my career as a practicing physician, spending more time in the garden, and creating a healing place for myself, my friends, and my family. I knew I would continue doing occasional interviews and maybe some online classes or mentoring. I would talk about the nature of water and the increasing pollution on our earth. But I also hoped that interest in my work would wane and simply become a part of the general consciousness, a new way of thinking that would change our attitude toward disease and rehumanize the practice of medicine. I did have a nagging thought, which had been there for years, that I needed to delve into the HIV slash AIDS affair. But I was content to let that be. It was more like an itch that only occasionally begged to be scratched. Not long ago, I had lunch with a homeopathic physician, and we were joking about our respectively long careers in medicine and how much things have changed over the years. For some reason, the conversation turned to immunology, and we asked each other what we remembered learning in medical school about immunology. That was back in the early 1980s. We both jokingly concluded that the only thing we remembered was being taught that if you wanted to know whether a patient was immune to a particular viral disease, you could test antibody levels. If the antibodies were high, that meant they were immune. Just as people remember for the, for the, for the rest of their lives the moment they heard that JFK was shot or about the World Trade Center towers coming down on September 11th, I have a vivid member of a memory of hearing the announcement by Robert Gallo in 1984 that they had found the cause of AIDS. It was caused by a virus called HIV. And the reason they knew it caused AIDS is that they found elevated antibody levels in some, not all, AIDS patients. I remember turning to a fellow medical student at the time and saying, hey, who changed the rules? In other words, after having spent the previous four years learning that people with antibodies to a virus were immune to that particular virus, we were now being told, with no explanation whatsoever, that antibodies meant that the virus was actually causing the disease. I didn't buy it then, and I don't buy it now. For more than 35 years, I've read countless articles, books, papers, and documents about the lack of connection between HIV and AIDS. This naturally led me to investigate the connection between viruses and other diseases, and what I discovered was shocking, to say the least. This is the background of my now-famous 10-minute video about the cause of the coronavirus quote-unquote pandemic. Even though I had been aware for decades that the virus king is naked, I was hoping that others would take up the challenge to relay this information to the general public. But a 10-minute video thrust me onto the stage. It all happened like this. In early 2020, I received an invitation to speak at a health conference in Arizona. I knew almost nothing about the group that invited me, but they gave me a first-class airplane ticket, so I agreed. I wasn't clear on what topic they wanted me to speak, but since I never speak with slides or notes, I figured I would improvise, as usual. Interestingly, a few times in the week leading up to this event, my wife asked me where I was going, to whom I was speaking, and what the subject was. I just shrugged and said they seemed like nice, earnest people. A few weeks earlier, the whole coronavirus event started to dominate the news. 
At first, I didn't think much of it, figuring that this was just another in a long line of viral scares. Remember SARS? MERS? Avian flu? Ebola? Swine flu? And Zika? These were going to kill us all, but then just faded away. But with coronavirus, things started to intensify, particularly the dramatic, draconian responses by the authorities. Still, I didn't think much about it. Although I did wonder whether the illnesses were the initial consequences of the planned 5G rollout, or perhaps a cover-up for the rollout. I thought about skipping the conference in Arizona, mostly because I was afraid of being quarantined there and not allowed to return home. I decided I was being paranoid and that I might as well honor my agreement to speak. When I arrived at the conference, I discovered that there were only 20 or 30 attendees. The three other speakers had all canceled or decided to do their talks via Skype or Zoom. I was scheduled to do one talk each day of the two-day conference. The first day's talk was on acute illness and vaccines, my usual stump speech on the subject, with a talk on heart disease on the second day. That night, we started to hear more about quarantines and grounded planes. Given the sparse attendance, I spent part of the night, part of that first night online to see whether I could catch an earlier flight home and just skip my second talk. I slept fitfully, worried about whether I should catch the 7 a.m. flight instead of my scheduled 1 p.m. flight. I decided that was crazy, and as long as I was there, I would do my talk on the heart and maybe end with a few comments about quote-unquote viruses and the current situation. To say I didn't know I was being taped is not accurate, as I obviously wore a microphone and a guy in the back of the room seemed to be filming me, at least some of the time. But in my mind, I was clearly speaking to that group of 20 or 30 people. At the end of the talk, I made a few off-the-cuff remarks about why viruses do not cause illness. I said my piece and left for the airport. I was one of 10 or so people on the plane, and I made it safely home, very glad to be there. A few days later, I got an email from Josh Coleman, the guy who'd filmed the video, saying he had posted my remarks on viruses somewhere online, and it was getting a huge response. I thought that I might be I, I I thought that this might be interesting, but not much more. The rest, as they say, is history. I have no idea how widely circulated that 10-minute video has become or how many people have seen it. Josh tell Josh tells me that it has had more than one million views. I only knew that I needed to speak more about this subject, even if only to clarify what I had said at the conference. Interest in my comments came from people all over the world. Overnight, I had become the point person for an alternative view of viruses, the germ theory, the current health situation, and a lot more. This led to a few podcast interviews, including one with Sayer G, that's S-A-Y-E-R space J-I, on greenmedinfo.com, G-R-E-E-N-M-E-D-I-N-F-O.com, and my own webinars. Of course, I was criticized and even received some shocking threats, but I have also received support in ways I could have never imagined. I meant no harm to anyone. I am one man with a certain perspective, hopefully correct in some things, and if incorrect in other things, I ask my readers only to understand that any errors come out of a place of seeking the truth and my ability to understand the situation. Two things press me forward. The first is to make it possible for all of us to live in a world where everyone can speak their minds and hearts freely without fear or recrimination, recrimination or abuse. 
what could possibly be wrong with having an open and honest debate about the nature and cause of illness and disease? This is a complex question, and no one person or group has all the answers. But isn't that what real science, as opposed to scientism, is supposed to be about? Second, scientism is what's going on in the media. It's what's going on with recommendations to wear masks. You guys get it. Second, I am concerned that if my understanding of the current situation is even close to correct, an understanding for which we intend to make a clear and convincing case in these pages, then humanity is at a crossroads right now. There will be profound, even unimaginable consequences for all life on earth if we fail to heed the messages that emerge from the current situation. My contention is that if we fail to understand the true cause of the quote-unquote coronavirus pandemic, end quote, then we will go down a bitter path from which there will be no turning back. That is what is driving me to write this book. I am happy to be writing this book with fellow iconoclast Sally Fallon Morell. Sally and I have been friends, collaborators. This is our third book together, and I dare say spiritual partners for over two decades. With a small contribution from me, Sally founded the Weston A. Price Foundation in 1999, perhaps the single best resource available for bringing truth in food, medicine, and farming to a world starving for that truth. I sincerely wish this to be the last book Sally and I work on together. We have enjoyed collaborating, but I expect that the current quote-unquote pandemic we are living through will be a profound turning point in the history of humanity. It is my hope that out of this event, a new way of life will emerge in a world free of poisoned food, poisoned water, and the poisonous and false germ theory. In this world, I envision no need for Sally and I, for Sally and myself to write books. People will just know how to live. They will know that to poison their food, water, air, and the electrical sheath of the earth is something only madmen can contemplate. We both look forward to the day when we can forget about warning people about this or that and spend more time growing and cooking food and sharing it in joy and laughter with our families, friends, and neighbors. No more books after this, dear friends. You will know all you need to know. Buckle up, folks. We are in for the ride of our lives. Dr. Thomas S. Cowan, M.D., written in July, 2020. If you guys are liking this, I'll give you just a little bit from part one, exposing the germ theory. So this is from The Contagion Myth. That's the name of the book, The Contagion Myth, Why Viruses, Including Coronavirus, Are Not the Cause of Disease, written by Dr. Thomas N. Cowan and Sally Fallon Burrell, as mentioned. Um, so if you appreciate this and you're resonating with parts of this and you're curious, um, pick up a copy of this book. It's already been banned, I believe, on Amazon, so you won't get it there. But if you just Google search or do a, uh, don't even use Google, um, use Brave or, or DuckDuckGo and do a search for the contagion myth, Thomas Cowan, C-O-W-A-N, you should find some options for buying it on like Barnes and Noble or Target and places like that. Um, if you guys are digging this, I'll give you just a little bit from part one, which is exposing the germ theory, and then um, go, pick up, go pick up the book. So chapter one, contagion. Let's get right to the nitty gritty of this issue, contagion. 
how do we know whether any set of symptoms has an infectious cause? As we all can imagine, determining the cause of a disease in general or a set of symptoms in any particular person can be a complex and difficult task. Obviously, there are many factors to be considered for any one person at any one time in his or her life. Are the symptoms a result of genetics, poisoning, bad diet, and nutrient deficiencies? Stress, EMFs, negative emotions, placebo or nocebo effects, or infection from another person or by a bacteria or virus. In finding our way through this morass, we need well-defined rules to determine how to prove causation, and these rules should be clear, simple, and correct. We do have such rules, but scientists have ignored them for years. Unfortunately, failure to follow these guidelines threatens to destroy the fabric of society. Imagine that an inventor calls you up and says he has invented a new ping pong ball that is able to knock down brick walls and therefore make the process of demolition much easier and safer for builders and carpenters. Sounds interesting, although it is hard to imagine how a ping pong ball could do such a thing. You ask the inventor to show you how he has determined that the new ping pong balls are able to destroy brick walls. His company sends you a video. The video shows them putting a ping pong ball in a bucket of rocks and ice cubes. They then take the bucket and fling it at a small brick wall. The wall goes down. There's the proof, they say. Wait a minute. How do we know it was the ping pong ball that knocked down the wall and not the rocks and ice cubes that were also in the bucket? Good question, the inventor replies, and then sends you a video showing an an animated or virtual ping pong ball destroying a virtual brick wall. He lets you know that the ball and the wall are exact renditions of the actual ball and brick. Still, something doesn't seem right. After all, it's fairly easy to create a computer image or video that shows such an occurrence. Yet we would all agree it has nothing to do with what might happen with the actual ball and wall. This episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show is brought to you by Veritas Farms and their full line of CBD products, CBD standing for cannabidiol. Now, we are real excited about this partnership because Veritas means truth in Latin, and we are big believers in bringing you guys the truth, not just through this podcast, but by making sure that any products that we share or that we bring on as sponsors are products that we personally use, believe in, and endorse ourselves. And that is the case with Veritas Farms and their full line of CBD products. The reason that they're so great, they are full spectrum hemp products, meaning that they have all of the beneficial phytonutrients that you get in a quality CBD product. 99% of the CBD products on the market are CBD isolate, and they're just being resold, meaning they're coming from a few small manufacturers. They've only got one tiny part of all of the important phytonutrients that you need to get the benefits you want from a CBD product, and they're just a bunch of different companies reselling them. Veritas Farms is vertically integrating, meaning they own the farm. They ensure that there are no pesticides being added. It's organic, and then they control the entire process from harvesting to extraction until that product ends up at your door. That's what I love it. It's kind of like farm to table, but for CBD. And the benefits that I've noticed, my sleep is better. I feel like I get a deeper, more restful night's sleep. I'm less stressed. I never have periods of anxiety. I feel calm and focused throughout the day, and it even decreases inflammation when I have flights or other things where inflammation is 
an inevitable part of life. You take a little extra CBD and it can be very helpful for stress, anxiety, sleep, and that inflammation. So if you guys want to check it out, we've arranged a 15% discount for you guys. To get that, you can go to theveritasfarms.com forward slash biohacks. I'll spell it out. T-H-E-V-E-R-I-T-A-S-F-A-R-M-S.com forward slash B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S to save 15%. Check out the Veritas Farms CBD. You guys are going to absolutely love it. The inventor is getting exacerbated with all your questions, but since you are a potential investor and he is interested in having your financial support, he persists. He then sends you a detailed analysis of what makes his ping pong ball special. It has special protrusions on the outside of the ball that, quote, grab onto and destroy the integrity of the cement holding the bricks together, end quote. And they build a lightweight internal system in the ping pong ball that, according to the inventor, leverages the power of the ball, making it hundreds of times more powerful than the usual ping pong ball. This, he says, is absolute proof that the new ball can whack down walls. At this point, you're ready to hang up with this lunatic, but then he puts the final, then he pulls the final trump card. He sends you videos of five esteemed researchers in the field of ping pong ball demolition. They, of course, have been funded entirely by the Ping Pong Ball Demolition Council and have attained prestigious positions in the field. They each separately give testimony about the interesting qualities of this new ping pong ball. They admit that more research is needed, but they have, quote, presumptive end quote, evidence that the claims of improved efficacy are correct and that a cautious investment is warranted. At that point, you do hang up the phone and check outside to see whether you've been dropped into Alice's Wonderland and whether you have, you have been talking to the Mad Hatter. Now, if this ping pong ball can really knock down brick walls, the obvious thing to do is to take the ping pong ball, throw it at a wall, and record what happens, and then have multiple other non-invested people do the same to make sure the company didn't put lead in the ball and throw it at a wall made of paper bricks. We could call this the ultimate ping pong ball test, or UPPBT. As bizarre and crazy as it sounds, this lack of evidence that a mic that a microorganism called coronavirus pulls down the wall of your immune system, invades your cells, and starts replicating in them is exactly what has happened with the coronavirus pandemic. No one has bothered to see what happens if you do the UPPBT throwing the ball against the wall. And if you even suggest that we do this, the trolls emerge from the shadows to call you a crazy, crazy person spreading, quote unquote, fake news. Most people would agree that the requirement of proving that the ping pong ball can destroy the brick wall is not something any of us would consider negotiable. And most people would agree that seeing a real brick wall demolished by a ping pong, ping pong ball constitutes proof. In other words, sane rational human beings would accept the above UPPBT as true and relevant. Heinrich Hermann Robert Koch, 1843 to 1910, is considered one of the founders of modern bacteriology. He created and improved laboratory techniques for isolating bacteria and developed techniques for photographing bacteria. His research led to the creation of Koch's postulates, a kind of UPPBT for disease, which consists of four principles linking specific microorganisms to specific diseases. Koch's postulates are as follows. One, the microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease, but not found in healthy organisms. 
I'll repeat that. The microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease, but not found in healthy organisms. Two, the microorganism must be isolated from a diseased organism and grown in a pure culture. Number three, the cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. And number four, the microorganism must be re-isolated from the now-diseased experimental host, which received the inoculation of the microorganisms and identified as identical to the original specific causative agent. If all four conditions are met, you have proven the infectious cause for a specific set of symptoms. This is the only way to prove causation. I repeat, this is the only way to prove causation. Interestingly, even Koch could not find proof of contagion using his postulates. He abandoned the requirement of the first postulate when he discovered carriers of cholera and typhoid fever who did not get sick. In fact, bacteriologists and virologists today believe that Koch's sensible and logical postulates, quote, have been recognized as largely obsolete by epidemiologists since the 1950s, end quote. Koch's postulates are for bacteria, not for viruses, which are about 1,000 times smaller. In the late 19th century, the first evidence for the existence of these tiny particles came from experiments with filters that had pores small enough to retain bacteria and let other particles through. In 1937, Thomas Rivers modified Koch's postulates in order to determine the infectious nature of viruses. Rivers' postulates are as follows. One, the virus can be isolated from diseased hosts. The, the virus can be isolated from diseased hosts. Number two, the virus can be cultivated in host cells. Number three, proof of filterability. The virus can be filtered from a medium that also contains bacteria. Four, the filtered virus will produce a comparable disease when the cultivated virus is used to infect experimental animals. Five, the virus can be re-isolated from the infected experimental animal. And six, a specific immune response to the virus can be detected. Please note that Rivers drops Koch's first postulate. That's because many people suffered from quote-unquote viral illnesses, suffering from quote-unquote viral illnesses, do not harbor the offending microorganism. Even with Koch's first postulate missing, researchers have not been able to prove that a specific virus causes a specific disease using Rivers postulates. One study claims that Rivers postulates have been met for SARS, said to be a viral disease, but careful examination of this paper demonstrates that none of the postulates have been satisfied. Again, this book's central claim is that no disease attributed to bacteria or viruses has met all of Koch's postulates or all of Rivers' criteria. This is not because the postulates are incorrect or obsolete. In fact, they are entirely logical, but rather because bacteria and viruses don't cause disease, at least not in any way that we currently understand. How did this state of error come about, especially concerning infections 
with bacteria and viruses. It goes back a long time, even to philosophies espoused in ancient Greece. Several philosophers and, and medics promoted this theory during the Renaissance, but in modern times, this masquerade became the explanation for most disease with the great fraud and with Let's read that again. But in, but in modern times, this masquerade became the explanation for most disease with that great fraud and plagiarist, Louis Pasteur, father of germ theory. Imagine a case in which some people who drink the milk from a certain cow develop profuse bloody diarrhea. Your job is to find the cause of the problem. You wonder whether there is a transmissible agent in the milk that is being consumed by the unfortunate people, which makes them ill. This seems perfectly reasonable thus far. You then examine the milk under the newly invented microscope apparatus and find a bacterium in the milk. You can tell by its appearance that it is different from the usual bacteria that are found in all milk. You carefully examine the milk, discover that most, if not all, of the people with bloody diarrhea in fact did drink this milk. You then examine the milk consumed by people who didn't develop diarrhea and find that none of the milk samples contain the particular bacterium. You name the bacteria, quote, listeria, end quote, after a fellow scientist. Then you wrap up the case, you pur purify the bacteria so that nothing else from the, from the milk remains. You give this purified bacterial culture to a person who then develops bloody diarrhea. The clincher is that you then find the same bacteria in their stool. Case closed, infection proven. Pasteur did this type of experiment for 40 years. He found sick, pe sick people, claimed to have isolated a bacteria, gave the pre-culture to animals, often by injecting it into their brains, and made them sick. As a result, he became the celebrity scientist of his time, feted by kings and prime ministers, and hailed as a great scientist. His work led to pasteurization, a technique responsible for destroying the integrity and health-giving properties of milk, see chapter 9. His experiments ushered in ger the germ theory of disease, and for over a century, this radical new theory has dominated not only the practice of Western medicine, but also our cultural and economic life. We are proposing a different way of understanding the milk study. For example, what if the milk came from cows that were being poisoned or starved? Maybe they were dipped in flea poison, or maybe they were fed grains sprayed with arsenic instead of their natural diet of grass. Maybe they were fed distillery waste and cardboard, a common practice in pastures day in many cities around the world. We now know with certainty that any toxins fed to a nursing mammal show up in her milk. What if these listeria bacteria are not the cause of anything, but simply nature's way of digesting and disposing of toxins. After all, this seems to be the role that bacteria play in biological life. If you put stinky stuff in your compost pile, the bacteria feed on the stuff and proliferate. No rational person would claim the compost pile has an infection. In fact, what the bacteria do in the compost pile is more of a bioremediation, or consider a pond that has become a dumping ground for poisons. The algae, quote-unquote, see the poison and digest it, returning the pond to a healthier state as you stop poisoning the pond. Oh, as long as you stop poisoning the pond. Again, this is bioremediation, not infection. If you take the aerobic bacteria, 
bacteria that need oxygen and put them in an anaerobic environment in which their oxygen supply is reduced. They often produce poisons. Clostridia is a family of bacteria that under healthy circumstances ferments carbohydrates in the lower bowel and produces important compounds like butyric acid, like butyric acid. But under anaerobic conditions, this bacteria produces poisons that can cause botulism. It is the poisons, not the bacteria itself, that make people sick. Or more fundamentally, it is the environment or terrain that causes the bacteria to create the poisons. Think about that, guys. (laughs) Isn't it possible that toxins in the milk, possibly because the cow is not well-nourished and cannot easily get rid of the toxins, account for the presence of listeria, which is always present in our body, along with billions of other bacteria and particles called viruses? The listeria is simply biodegrading the toxins that proliferate due to the unhealthy conditions of the milk. The central question then is how can we prove that the listeria and not something toxic in the milk is causing the diarrhea? The answer is the same as in the ping pong ball example. Feeding a healthy person the milk is like throwing the bucket with stones, ice, and yes, a ping pong ball at the wall. It proves nothing. You must isolate the ball, in this case, the listeria, and feed only this to the healthy person or animal to see what happens. This is what Pasteur claims to his this is what Pasteur claims to have done in his papers. Pasteur passed his laboratory notebook along with along to his heirs with the provision that they never made the notebooks public. However, his grandson, Louis Pasteur Valerie Radot, who apparently didn't care for Pasteur much, donated the notebooks to the French National Library, which published them. In 1914, Professor Gerard Geisen of Princeton University published an analysis of these notebooks, which revealed that Pasteur had committed massive fraud in all his studies. For instance, when he said that he injected virulent anthrax spores into vaccinated and unvaccinated animals, he could trumpet the fact that the unvaccinated animals died, but that was because he also injected the unvaccinated animals with poisons. In the notebooks, Pasteur states unequivocally that he was unable to transfer disease with a pure culture of bacteria. He obviously wasn't able to purify viruses at the time. In fact, the only way he could transfer disease was to either insert the whole infected tissue into another animal he would sometimes inject, inject ground-up brains of animals into the brain of another animal to quote-unquote prove contagion, or resort to adding poisons to his culture, which he knew would cause the symptoms in the recipients. He admitted that the whole effort to prove contagion was a failure, leading to his famous deathbed confession, quote, the germ is nothing, the terrain is everything, end quote. In this case, terrain refers to the condition of the animal or person and whether the animal or person has been subject to poison. Since Pasteur's day, no one has demonstrated experimentally the transmissibility of disease with pure cultures of bacteria or viruses. No one has bothered since Pasteur's time to throw a ping pong ball at a wall and see what happens. Incredibly, as that incredible as that may seem, 
we are sitting on a house of cards that has resulted in incalculable harm to humanity, the biosphere, and the geosphere of the earth. In chapters two and three, we will examine cases in which bacteria or viruses were falsely accused of causing disease. Read on, dear friends. The ride has only started. All right. That's all I'm going to share in story time for today. If you guys like these episodes, uh, send me a message on Instagram at Biohacking Secrets or on Facebook, the uh, Anthony DiClemente page that has like, I don't know, 70,000 followers or so. Um, or you can send an email to Anthony at Biohacking Secrets. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, biohackersguide.com forward slash energy crash. And if you want to be a part of building the new earth and, um, our community of like-minded people living in harmony with nature and following natural law. Um, go to biohackercoaching.com, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-E-R coaching.com. Uh, fill out the application. Let me know. Again, minimum investment is 25K and uh, goes all the way up to 100 if you want a full acre. Again, um, pending approval and it, uh, being a mutual fit. Uh, appreciate you guys. Have a beautiful start to your 2021 and I'll talk to you soon. Remember, share this episode and encourage other people to subscribe and all that good stuff. Talk soon. What's up, guys? Anthony here. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show. One of my favorite things to do is helping men and women like you feel what it's like with the body you've always wanted, an all-day energy that starts the moment you wake up and doesn't quit. Over the past decade, we've created a proprietary health assessment that helps me to identify the unique toxicities and deficiencies that may be holding you back from the life that you deserve. And what we've discovered in doing this with now thousands of CEOs, executives, professional athletes, businessmen, Hollywood celebrities, and entrepreneurs is that there's always room for improvement and optimization. Whether you're already performing at a high level or you have that feeling inside your heart that you're capable of more, the single fastest way to unlock your potential is to upgrade your mind and your body. And there's no program on earth that does that faster or to a greater magnitude than our one-on-one -on -one consulting program at www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. We start with our proprietary health assessment that screens you for vitamin deficiencies like A, D, magnesium, iron, etc., high cholesterol and heart disease, high blood pressure, digestive disorders, hidden infections like Lyme, Epstein-Barr, parasites, SIBO, candida, and more that can just drain your energy in the background, especially if you don't know about them. Anxiety, depression, and cognitive disorders, autoimmune disease, adrenal fatigue, thyroid issues, mold toxicity, heavy metals, environmental toxins, and other genetic risk factors like MTHFR, APOE status, your glutathione production, and many more. We even recommend the specific tests that I use with my one-on-one -on -one clients if they're relevant for you in figuring out your biological age and identifying those key areas and opportunities that can take your life to the next level. From there, we create a customized game plan along with a personalized supplement protocol to help you optimize your weight and energy at the cellular level. And for our platinum clients, we even include a personalized workshop with me in Delray Beach, Florida. Most of the year, this program's full with a waiting list, but we just had a couple spots open up and I wanted to offer them to the listeners of the Biohacking Secrets show first. So if you're interested in seeing what it might look like for us to work together, head over to www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. That's www 
www.bihackingsecrets.com forward slash C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G and fill out the short application form. If you're pre-approved, you'll be given the opportunity to book a time to connect with someone on our team and see if it's a fit. Thank you so much for being a part of this community, and I look forward to potentially going on this journey together. 